WDBM East Lansing. The Impact. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. tuned into Exposure, Michigan State's student-run news program here on Impact 89 FM. I'm your host, Daniel Rizal. First, go to my conversation with Impact reporter Aaron Martinez as we discuss the Federal Educational Rights and Privacy Act. After that, we'll go to Quinn Hoffman's interview with Rio Town President Ryan Wirt over an upcoming thrift store gala event. We then have my feature on Dean Bull, a clock repairman in Traverse City. And from there, we'll go to our second installment with Associated Students of Michigan State University as we interview James Conwell and Catherine Moss over their outreach plans for the rising student population. We'll end the show with Quinn Hoffman as he explains the rebirth of our latest exposure segment, Michigan Storytellers. But first, here's your weekly impact update. Exposure will continue in just a moment. But first, here's your weekly impact update. On Saturday, President Barack Obama gathered with thousands of others in Selma, Alabama. It had been 50 years since the civil rights demonstrators were beaten and tear-gassed by police at the Edmund Pettus Bridge in the city of Selma. According to ABC News, the president took stage at the bridge to commemorate the major moment in American civil rights history. While delivering a speech to the attendants of the anniversary, the president praised the accomplishments of the marchers at Selma and across the country in the civil rights movement, but also reminded the listeners that the work is not finished. President Obama delivered his speech saying, we need to open our eyes, ears, and hearts to know that the nation's racial history still casts a long shadow upon us. The president went on to say, we know the march is not yet over, and the race is not won, and reaching that blessed destination where we were judged, all of us, by the content of our character, requires admitting as much, facing up to the truth. Now we go to Impact Reporter Michael Gerstein with your local news update. On March 31st, Rio Town will host the second annual Thrift Store Gala. The gala features many fine performers, including a burlesque, music, magic, and much more. All of this will be experienced while guests don the fanciest clothing they can find at their local thrift store. For tickets, you can check their website at www.thriftstoregala.com. With your Impact News, I'm Michael Gerstein. Finally, we go to Impact reporter Spencer Perrineau. President Obama lambasted the Ferguson Police Department after a recent Justice Department report revealed the police force's history of racial bias. The report found that the city had been systematically targeting black residents to boost municipal revenue. Obama said on Friday in Columbia, South Carolina, What we saw was that the Ferguson Police Department, in conjunction with the municipality, saw traffic stops, arrests, tickets as a revenue generator as opposed to serving the community, and that it has systematically biased against African Americans in that city who were stopped, harassed, mistreated, abused, called names, and fined. For Impact News, I'm Spencer Perrin. That was your weekly Impact Update. Now, back to Exposure. We start off the show tonight as I discuss with Impact reporter Aaron Martinez about the Federal Education Rights and Privacy Act 
as well as what I found in my admission files. You're tuned into Exposure here on Impact 89 FM. I'm your host, Daniel Rizal, and I'm here today with Aaron Martinez to discuss the Federal Educational Rights and Privacy Act. How are you today, Aaron? I'm good, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Uh, so what is FERPA for our listeners out there? Well, like you said, FERPA is uh, known as the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act. And what it is is it's a law that was passed by Congress that it relates to uh, educational records, typically for students under the age of 18. Uh, however, but in recent years, they've begun applying FERPA in more college settings and post-high school settings. But in its general, general form, uh, FERPA is just to, a law that protects uh, educational records, whatever they may be, from getting out into the public. Sure. Now, we first started talking about this, what, maybe a, a month ago or so? Um, and we became interested in this when uh, some students at Stanford originally, Fountain Hoppers, I believe yeah, it was? Yeah, the Fountain Hoppers. The Fountain... Satire magazine. Right, right. And uh, so they essentially gave uh, step-by-step instructions, uh, correct, for students to request their FERPA documents. And uh, so that was something that uh, Aaron and I became interested in here, and we requested our files back in uh, late January, I believe. You know, one day one day right after the other, we walked on over to the, the office of the registrar and dropped off our files. And from there, um, we, had a, we waited for the 45-day period, which uh, I don't know if you want to explain more on that, on the, I guess, the, the legal standing there. Yeah, sure. Well, to back up a little bit, like you said, the students in Stanford decided that they, they wanted to kind of find out what was in their records at their school. So they got a couple of them together, and they got together with a bunch of the students at the Atlanta, or Stanford Law School, and they came up with a step-by-step uh, guide on how exactly to go about getting those documents. And so they did it, and like you said, they waited about a 45-day period, as we did, and uh, what they found was that they had uh, as much information uh, as, you know, even when their key cards were swiped at the school. So they had a lot of information there. And from what I understand now, it, it definitely varies from school to school. But what, when we did it here, uh, we walked over to the office of the registrar. And like you said, we handed them the request form. And 45 days later, you got your, your papers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just... Uh... Uh, a few days ago, on uh, last Friday it was, on the 27th, I met up with a, a lady at the office of the registrar, and uh, she led me to uh, the man who is in charge of the admission files here at MSU, and uh, he gave me a walkthrough of the files that they currently have on me. And uh, we had, they had three main files. They had one, which is my high school transcript, which, you know, pretty standard, just all the classes I took and my uh, grade equivalents, and then... They also had my online application, which I submitted uh, in about uh, October or so of 2013, and uh, which was converted into like a more uh, physical-looking application form. And then they had my third file, which is where all the juicy stuff was. <laughs> so, <laughs> and that third file was uh, essentially everything that MSU wrote about my file. And uh, to uh, start that off, when I was going over uh, the notes uh, with the the head of the admission files. Um, the first thing I noticed on the application is that they have a thing called a predictor GPA, which uh, is a computer-generated pro- uh, program that takes your high school GPA and compares it to the GPAs from other students uh, that came from your high school to attend MSU, and it predicts what your GPA will be 
at your first semester here at Michigan State. Yeah, that seems so crazy to me that they have something they can narrow it down that mm-hmm. much to try to, you know, kind of project how you're essentially going to do. Are you going to survive? You're going to sink or swim. Right. And, you know, and it, to me, it's interesting that they, they even have that on the application there for your, your counselor to review. Um, though the the man I was uh, speaking with there claimed that, it, you know, it plays no factor into your admission. But it is interesting that they have it on there, you know, to kind of see if you'll sink or swim, <laughs> per se. And uh, so, let's see. I had a 3.600 GPA ending high school, the end of my senior year. And uh, the... The computer program predicted that I would end up with an overall first-year GPA here at MSU of 3.149. Now, we're only through um, the the second half right now of my first year here at MSU, uh, so we don't know how accurate that is as of right now. But my first semester GPA, which I just looked up a few minutes ago, came to about a 3.2. So it really wasn't that too far off as far as my first semester goes. Um, Of course, again, that's not you know, factoring in what I'll be getting this semester. Um, but, uh, yeah, I thought that was an interesting find for sure, you yeah. know? Well, and let me say, you were very brave for putting all of this out there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this, yeah for, for our listeners out there, I'm being uh, completely honest with everything that I'm reporting right now as far as, as my grades go. I feel like that's just the transparency will really pull things together here tonight. Yeah. Um, uh, let's see. And then the, the next uh, major find was... Uh, that they also do a recalculated GPA. So when your counselor is going through your application, you have all of your academic courses are taken into consideration on what grades you got in your academic courses. So uh, that is uh, your math classes, foreign language, English, science, social science, and all of your advanced placement courses. So anything like performing arts, like dance, band, art, choir, or um, even uh, some extra, or sorry, not extracurricular, some uh, elective courses like uh, economics in my ca- uh, in my case, are just completely tossed out the window as well. Which and, seems uh, kind of a little bizarre to me, too, because you got some people here who come to Michigan State exactly for those performing arts right. courses. So, you know, if somebody goes into, you know, vocal performance in the music college, does it really accurately kind of, you know, represent how their success is here at sure. Michigan State? Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's questions that I still kind of have. Right. And like, with the economics class I took like that along with uh, I did a marketing course as well and you know that just you know that's got tossed out too they only focus on the core classes and now um you know I'm an undecided student here but had I chosen to go into something related to business you know I wonder how that would have affected my admission because they just didn't take those classes into account you know yeah um so as far as uh GPAs go on that once again my high school GPA was a 3.600 so that's uh, the weighted grade, along with all my courses, including all the performing arts, economics, marketing, etc. Um, and after recalculation, it dropped down to a 3.25. So that's a pretty big drop there. Um, and uh, they they took that recalculated GPA, and that's how they based my uh, admission. And um, kind of my, I guess I walk through where my admission was <laughs> at this time. I submitted my application uh, mid-October of 2013. And it says here that uh, it was first marked as WD7S, which uh, what does that mean? It's like <laughs> it, it, it's it means that uh, they're they'll make their decision after my seventh semester grades come in. Okay. So my first semester of my senior year of high school, and um, so then my seventh semester grades came in. They were submitted to uh, MSU, and then from there, 
on uh, February 19, 2014, it was marked as PGB2. You know, it's just all these, these codes are being thrown yeah, out there. But, Star um, Wars characters. Right. <laughs> so you have, you have uh, PGB2, um, which is kind of, uh, as I was described, is like the second highest pool, quote unquote, of where you get selected from. The only pool higher than that means that you were directly sent out a letter of admission. So for uh, about a one-week span, so I wasn't in there for long because I was sent a letter of uh, admission on February 27th, and again, I was marked as PGB2 on February 19th. Uh, so I didn't have to wait too long, but um, again, I was in that waiting pool, and if a spot opened up in the admission pool, then the committee would review me, and then they got pulled in, which is exactly what happened. So uh, the counselors that review your application actually don't make the final decision as they go to a committee, and um, from there, it, they decide if you're admitted. And so, again, on February 27th, my application was marked as ADMT, meaning admission. Congratulations. Um, well, thank you. <laughs> Here I am today. You know? <laughs> and so, yeah, so it's kind of, a, I guess, an interesting process in on how that, you know, label every step of the way. Well, um, it seems like they have a pretty, you know, it's a very concise process, too. Like you were mm -hmm. saying how only certain people really get access to this. It's almost like they, they throw a big confidential stamp right on it. Right. You know, so that you, you really understand that the privacy aspect of FERPA really does exist. Mm -hmm. You know, you were saying that you had one counselor that kind of followed yep. it all the way through to the end. Mm -hmm. And then this, you know, selective, you know, admissions commission or committee got the, the final say. So it seems like a very, very small number of people actually ultimately get to see all of these things that you got to see in your file. Mm hmm. Um, the, the counselor, it was the same person throughout. Um, is the same name appeared during every review. So when I was before there was a decision made, and then when I was marked as the was the W, uh, WD seven S, and then moved on to the B PG B two again. That was all the same counselor every time. And so that would have been almost about a year in between when you first submitted and when you were admitted. Is that was that right? It have been about. Five months or so, Five I think, because so. I submitted in October 2013. Okay. And uh, I was officially admitted in February 2014. But still, I mean, five months to have somebody consistently, you know, the watching same person over, over exactly. and over. And, uh, you know, that's that really says something, you know, a lot about the university that they're really respecting that privacy. And it's not just flying around a hundred different counselors. Out yeah. There. You know, it's just one person dedicated to looking after my application. Mm -hmm. You really get that individualized you know, right. look, and it's really kind of like a, you know, they come in as a blank slate, and then it's just between you and that counselor at right. that point. Um, and then on my, uh, my last uh, find, that when you submit your application along with all of your grades and the classes you took, um, you also just submit a personal statement, which uh, for mine, uh, I did it, and I, I sadly don't have it pulled up in front of me, but for my personal statement, I based it around uh, me coming from Brazil. I talked about, you know, like, like diversity and like cultural awareness aspects. So was, I wrote out this personal statement, which, you know, at the time I was under the impression that it played a pretty key role um, in deciding if I would uh, be admitted to MSU. But when I was uh, meeting with the head of admissions, uh, he spoke with me and said that usually the personal statements are only used as a, a tiebreaker. So when you have two students who academically are on the same level, and the committee who's reviewing them from that second pool that I was mentioning earlier to bring them up into the admission pool, then they use that personal statement as a tiebreaker. And, um, and now in my case, uh, 
there were no comments on my personal statement. Um, so as far as I know, they might have read over it and just that was the end of that, or they didn't even look at it. Gave at somebody all. a nice little story to read in the afternoon. Right, with yeah. <laughs> a cup of coffee. And yeah, but you know, and, and from my vantage point at my high school, I know they put a lot of emphasis on making sure that the personal statements were you know personable and making sure that they mm-hmm. were orderly and they were structured. So to kind of hear that you know that's really something that doesn't play a key role, it kind of makes you think. Oh sure, yeah, we had a college. Uh, application week at my high school which is first week of october or so which is like right before the big deadline for mm-hmm. most applications and um it was interesting because they put like you said such a large emphasis on these personal statements and i'm you know a little disappointed that you know, yeah. it didn't factor as big of a role as i was hoping for mm-hmm. it to. um but uh and it's also interesting because you have like the common app um which of course msu doesn't use that the common app but for that, you have to write a multitude of essays, and I'm wondering what happened with those. You yeah, know, are they like, even looked at? Right, you know, and so it's 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 interesting for sure that those personal statements are just, I guess, a cushion. I guess on your application, really, you know, at the end of the day. Yeah, and I'm sure even the the file that you received is probably even different, you know, in terms of content than probably what people have gotten over the last 10, 20 years. You know, the amount of information that these schools have been either holding on to or not holding mm-hmm. on to has probably changed over the last couple of years, especially, you know, when you start thinking about affirmative action and how race plays into admissions. I, that's another interesting sure. component that I think, you know, people who might be interested in wanting to pull their own files over the last couple of years, you know, might want to consider. Because mm-hmm. I know in Michigan, we, we necessarily, we can't by law factor in race into our admissions process, but it's still, they know of some schools, you know, not necessarily this school, but schools all around that still kind of put a certain extent of an emphasis on on race and other factors that maybe necessarily Michigan State doesn't. Sure, yeah, it's you know, and uh, you know, like with my file, I didn't find anything, you know, truly, you know, shattering. You know, I didn't find anything that was wasn't you know, groundbreaking. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Means. You know, but interesting stuff for sure, especially like the. Um, that GPA predictor I, I thought was really the most interesting out of everything that that I found. But um, and uh, also uh, j- just a quick side note: um, uh, MSU uh, or under FERPA uh, universities do not have to give you a physical copy of your records unless if you uh, live in a location where it's just geographically inconvenient inconvenient for you to go review your files in person. So for in my case, living on campus, of course, it was very easy for me to walk right over to the Office of Registrar and meet in person. Uh, so when I asked for a copy of my files, um, I wasn't given one, which again is protected under under FERPA, um, but I was welcome to take notes. Um, and that even kind of shows the difference in procedures from school to school, you mm-hmm. know, and how you know un- or uniform these aren't in that, you know, the students at Stanford, when they pulled out their files, they did get to keep a copy of it. But at Michigan State, they choose to probably more err on the side of caution and not letting this information kind of just start floating out there. So it's definitely an interesting contrast to Mm -hmm. look at. Yeah, and I mean, and I I appreciate it that they they did let me take notes. Yeah, absolutely. Because it is my my information at the end of the day, um, which I think is why FERPA is so important to students. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, it's really a tool that a lot of students and even parents don't really understand that's there. Mm-hmm. You know, before a child is, you know, the age of 18, their parents are the sole, you know, people that are allowed to right. have access right. to any of their files before then. And, and then once we're after 18, like you and I are, 
it, it becomes kind of our turf that we have to kind mm-hmm. of start overseeing. And I think it's important that students right. should know. Exactly, because at that point, you know, my, mommy and daddy aren't there to, yeah. to request your FERPA files. I mean, you. I can go home and get a hot meal every day, but, you know, I, my mom still can't get into my admissions files right. unless I tell her. You know, earlier today, my mom was just messaging me. He's like, hey, you have to schedule your next dentist appointment. And I'm just thinking, like, Oh, mom, can't you do that for me? <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and you know, and then you know, but but back to FERPA, you know, this is really on the students now. Mm-hmm. You know, most of the students here are eighteen, or when they're coming in, are about to turn eighteen. Like I didn't turn eighteen until November, so I was seventeen for those first few months here at Michigan so young. State. All right, so young, <laughs> young blood right here. But uh, so it's really on the students at this point. Like I said, you know, mom and dad aren't out there to to hold your hand when. You go drop off your, your FERPA file. It's really on the students to realize what rights they have. And thankfully, the university here has kind of really streamlined the process in such a way that it doesn't take a whole lot of arm wrangling. I mean, you and I were able to do it with fairly you know, relative ease. And right. just, you know, as long as you go in there, you know what you're looking for and you don't waste their time. And thankfully, they mm-hmm. have all the forms available online. And I think we'll be end up uh, posting some of those on our website as well, impact89fm.org. And uh, students can go ahead and check those out. And, you know, I, I know we, I'd like to hear what they got back. Yeah. And uh, see, again, that's at impact89fm.org. After tonight's episode, we do upload uh, the full episode as a podcast. And we'll be including some links in our description uh, for that podcast for those of you who are interested. Uh, is there anything else that you wanted to add on? No, I think this is cool, man. You were able to find out all this stuff, you know, and, and they didn't waste very much time. And you got mm-hmm. it within the 45-day window, and it seemed that they were very, very cordial to you. So hats off to MSU for kind of a well-oiled machine. Yeah, they, they did a fantastic job with meeting with me. They, um, When I was first emailing uh, one of the employees there, who uh, she was setting up my file for you know me to meet with the head of admissions. Um, yeah, she was very responsive with her emails, gave me a whole window of times for me to meet. Um, so... They were excellent at scheduling it in for me. So, I, yeah, again, hats off to MSU for really making FERPA possible for the MSU population. Yeah, and hopefully we have a chance that we can kind of start delving into this a little bit more because I'm, I'm sure definitely it's like every admissions file tells a story about uh-huh. somebody, and I think there's a lot of stories to be told, especially on a campus of 50,000-plus people now. Mm-hmm. So that that's interesting. Yeah. Well, Aaron Martinez, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Daniel. We now go to Quinn's interview with Ryan Wirt, the president of the Rio Town Association, discussing an upcoming thrift store gala event. You're listening to Exposure on the Impact 89FM. Right now, I'm sitting down here with Ryan Wirt. Uh, he's here to talk to us about the thrift store gala that's uh, coming up pretty soon. Uh, and his, he told me his position earlier, but I, there's no way I'm going to remember it. So why don't you tell us, what's your position involving this? Um, I'm the owner of Elm Street Recording in Rio Town, and I'm also the president of the Rio Town Commercial Association. Um, the Thrift Store Gala is a fundraiser for Rio Town. Killer. What's Rio Town exactly? Uh, Rio Town's sort of the south end of downtown Lansing. So there's downtown in the middle, Old Town on the north side, and Rio Town on the south side. Got it. So this uh, Thrift Store Gala... Uh, Give us a quick breakdown. What's what's this thrift store gala about? Um, so the idea sort of sprung up a couple of years ago, and this is our second year doing the event. Um, so it's sort of a formal, fancy dress-up evening, uh, but thrift store themed. So sort of sort of a trashy, classy thing. Um, last year we had uh, for entertainment, it was just a burlesque show, um, which is awesome. This year we're kind of going with more of a variety show vibe. So uh, there are lots of burlesque girls still, but we also have a magician and some musicians and. 
uh, a comedian and some other weird stuff. Okay, so uh, there is a dress code, but it's you have to be oh so trashy. <laughs> yes, there, there's sort of a dress suggestion. Okay. Uh, it's not enforced. Um, we had a photo booth last year, so we have a lot of great photos of everybody, but it's sort of like, you know, ill-fitting tuxedos and prom dresses and so on. Okay, Lots so fur coats. So it's still pretty high class, but uh, just everything has to be made sure it was uh, hand-me-downed at least. Exactly, exactly. All right, cool. Uh, so this is a fundraiser for uh, Rio Town. Um, so it's, I'm assuming, being held in Rio Town? Yeah, um, it's actually being held at Foliage Design Systems, which is like a plant warehouse. Um, so they let us use their warehouse space, and we kind of deck it out for the night. Um, we have a bunch of random sponsors who have donated materials. Um, Dicker and Deal and Lansing lets us take all their furniture from their store. Um, and so that's sort of our seating for the event. Um, and a couple local thrift stores let us pick through their stuff and hang things up from there. Dope. So you said there was a magician. You mentioned a burlesque show last year. Yeah. Uh, yeah so essentially this is just kind of like a little... Uh, uh, show thing you can go to and see some performances? Yeah, so we, we have about um, two hours of entertainment booked um, with something new going off every five minutes. Um, so it's kind of all over the place. Um, and then in the middle of the, there are two one-hour sets, and in the middle there's a pinup pageant, um, which uh, we had sort of a preliminary round and we narrowed it down to 10 contestants. So uh, it's 10 ladies and it has to be strictly thrifted attire, um, and it's our like beauty pageant for the night. Nice. Um, and then we also have a, a like best-dressed man, best-dressed lady from the audience competition. Okay. Um, and Curvaceous Lingerie in Old Town gave us a gift certificate for the women's prize. And Kazachek's um, in downtown Lansing is the men's prize. What are some of the events on the on the bill? Um, so we have a bunch of members of the Lansing Unionized Vaudeville Spectacle are involved. Um, so Dylan, the front man, is our MC. Um, uh, Iris Thompson and Abby Hoffman are both backup singers in the band. They'll be doing solo sets. Um, James Garden is a local rapper. He'll be doing a doing a rap set. Um, we have two comedians. Uh, Jeff the Magician will be doing a magic set and kind of working the crowd. Um, there are six burlesque acts. My favorite's the Clawmark Kittens. They're a burlesque cat fighting troupe. Um, yeah, we have a boylesque performer. We have a belly dancer. Um, there are a couple surprises I don't want to give away. We have a food truck parked inside uh, serving stuff up. So, um, yeah, there's kind of something for everybody. Awesome. Um, okay. Um, so this is the second annual Correct. Thrift Store Gala. Um, so last year, what was it like? What was the turnout? You know, um, We ended up with about 200 people last time, um, which I think our capacity is probably something like 250. So if we keep growing, we're going to be really full. Um, it was a really good crowd. It was kind of crazy to see like city politicians and pinup girls and uh, you know rappers and everybody else sort of all hanging out together in the same room. Okay. That's pretty awesome. So there were like politicians there? Yeah. Um, last year, our MC was actually Kathy Dunbar, who's on city council. Um, she was coming straight from the mayor's birthday party. So she brought a whole contingent with her. Wow. Um, wow. And she's uh, doing a comedy set this year. Um, okay. So yeah. Fun. Um, yeah. So uh, the other people, are there a lot of students that go to this? Yeah. Um, uh, some from East Lansing. We, we get, you know, a trickle over from there. A lot of Cooley students and so on from, from around Lansing. Um, so it's sort of a all across the age spectrum. It's an 18 and up event. Um, last year it was 21 and up. Um, so you'll see people from 18 to 60. It's sort of a weird crowd. Okay. Um, so last you say last year it was uh, 21 and up? Correct, yeah. Okay. So then I'm assuming there was like a, a bar there? Um, yeah, Sleepwalker Spirits and Ale, which is a local okay. brewery. Um, they're doing all the beer for it. Um, then we have liquor and wine and, and sort of the usual assortment of stuff. Um, 
So yeah. a, a nice thrifty soiree. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So uh, we're talking about the uh, thrift store gala, or the thrift gala for uh, Rio Town uh, fundraiser, and it's sounding like to me a nice thrift themed soiree. Uh, what what's what are some of the things that you've seen people wear in there? Uh, last year we had a ton of fur coats. Uh, we we had a we had a coat check uh, set up by the door. We kind of didn't anticipate how heavy a whole bunch of fake fur is, uh, so we ended up breaking our coat check. Oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, which is pretty awesome. How did it break? Uh, is it too too much weight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot of a lot of fur. Um, oh God. So yeah, it was it was kind of all over the place. Um, again, if you go to our website, it's thriftstoregala.com. Um, there are a ton of pictures from last year's event and a video kind of explaining how the whole thing works and so on. Um, so there are a lot of good examples up there if you need some inspiration. Okay, awesome. Um. So this is a fundraiser for Rio Town. Uh, what what does the money kind of go to? Yeah, so Rio Town's a nonprofit. Um, it sort of supports the development of the Rio Town area. Um, it lets us uh, put on a lot of special events like this. Um, we also do the Rio Town Art Attack um, every summer, which will be the fifth year this year. Um, and we're doing a food truck court um, this summer every month uh, with an open bar and stuff like that. And uh, we do Lansing Beer Fest every year and so on. So. Um, sort of every successful event that puts puts money into our coffers lets us try another riskier event. Um, you know, Art Attack was sort of a safe thing. It's an art festival. Um, and as that was successful, we made some money. And so then we could try having a thrift store gala, which no one thought was going to work. Um, but then when it broke even, it was like, cool, we can do this again. Um, so, yeah, any any money we make just gives us a safety net to do more cool stuff. Awesome. Um, so quick recap. Uh Thrift Store Gala, uh, when when is it? Uh, March 21st from 8 p.m. to 2 a.m. Where is it at? Uh, 1027 South Washington, Foliage Design Systems. All right, if somebody wants to figure out how they can get tickets or entrance, uh, where can they go? Uh, www.thriftstoregala.com um, or on Facebook you can search uh, Rio Town Thrift Store Gala and Burlesque Extravaganza. So if any of that sounds interesting to you listening right now, uh, you can head to their website. We'll have it posted in the link below uh, online on our website at www.impact89fm.org. Uh, yeah, you might see me there. Awesome. It sounds fun. Yeah, beautiful. Thanks for coming in, Ryan. Thank you. Up next, we have my feature on Dean Bull, a clock repairman based out of Traverse City. Time. It's the universal element, the uniting factor in the human condition, and consequently, a subject for pop culture. Time is on my side. Yes, it is. I'm pledging my time. Anytime at all. I might stop the sick of time. Get off this situation. And for a Traverse City clock repairman, time has been his life. Just head down the steps at... 8 o'clock in the morning and work on clocks and answer the telephone and answer the door for customers that bring, bring clocks to me. And then I take a break and have lunch, and then I work in the afternoon. Dean Bull has been repairing clocks out of his home since 1974 after working as the head of customer service at Colonial of Zealand in the early 1970s. The beginning wasn't very glamorous, forcing Dean to take part-time jobs to support his income. I had this thing about making a living, you know, it's more fun than starving to death. I had a, I had a young family at the time, and, 
and frankly, it was uh, it was difficult. It was a pretty meager existence for the first several years. Dean's work with clocks would soon become a full-time pursuit, dedicating most of his life to his craft. Ever since he first became involved with clocks at Colonial, Dean has kept an observation close to him that explains both the physics and metaphysics behind the bond people create with clocks. When you wind your clock, you're either you're storing your body's energy in the weights or in the mainsprings. And when you hear that clock tick and chime and strike, you get that sound back in the form of, or that energy back in the form of sound. And in the process of making that energy exchange with your clock, there's a fondness that grows. And I can't explain that. That's, that's where the metaphysics begin. And I have had customers in such situations many times. They come to pick up the clock after it's tested out, and big tears will run down their cheeks because that's the first time they've heard that, you know, grandmother, grandmother's uh, mantle clock chime since they were a child. And it just they're just overwhelmed with emotion. It, it's, it's a very big deal. Dean's connection with his work goes beyond the gadgets he repairs and with the customers he meets. He shared a story with me about a clock he first repaired in 1982 that ended up being more than just any other repair for one of his customers. When I went back for the second time after, I think, 16 years, um, the woman mentioned to me, she said, how's Mackenzie? And Mackenzie happens to be my daughter, and at that time she would have been six years old, and she went with me for the service call, and this woman loved my daughter. And so 16 years later, I, I show up, and she asks how she's doing. Well, I had to bring her up to date on Mackenzie. And then just recently, which uh, would have been, what, 34 years later, 35 years later, from the original service call, um, I serviced the clock again, and again I updated her on the trivia file with Mackenzie. I've seen this woman three times in 35 years, but I, I can tell you without any question that if you called her up and said something bad about me, uh, she would defend me. It's just clocks are extremely important to people. If you have a talent for fixing them, you've got a job. It took Dean 20 years to perfect his skills in repairing clocks, and with retirement ticking closer and closer in his future, He's looking for an heir to his business. Someone that has the, the integrity and the desire and the mechanical ability to do it. Because by working with me, I can have him up to speed in five years instead of 20 years. But it's not going to happen quickly. I've done this all alone, basically. There's been very few times that I have been able to tap into uh, any kind of knowledge at all from other people because there are just not that many people that repair clocks. And uh, if, they, if you do find somebody, they're usually a long ways away and it's difficult to communicate. Um, and so basically I have taught my myself how to do this. As Dean waits for the right person to fill his shoes, he says that there's only one thing that will keep clocks in the lives of future generations. I think that, that the basic idea of clocks being important to people is uh, very basic, and I think that, that will live forever. Now, whether the clocks live forever depends on whether there's young people coming up that are uh, kind of like me. For Impact News, I'm Daniel Rizal.
Next, we have our second installment with Associated Students of Michigan State University as we interview James Conwell, president of ASMSU, and Catherine Moss, vice president of internal administration, over the rising population of students here at Michigan State that just recently passed 50,000 students. You are tuned into Exposure here on Impact 89 FM with your host, Daniel Rizal, and I'm here with James Conwell and Catherine Moss here from Associated Students of Michigan State University to discuss uh, student outreach and the upcoming student tax vote. Thank you for coming in today. Hey, glad to be back. Thanks for having us, Dan. So start with an introduction uh, by each of you and uh, what you do at ASMSU. Sure. Uh, my name is James Conwell. I'm the uh, president of ASMSU. Uh, in this role, I chair the General Assembly meetings. Uh, I work with, uh, I am the liaison between ASMSU and the administration of the university. Uh, help work on projects that the vice presidents are working on and make uh, help uh, do outreach to the student body. And I'm Catherine Moss. I'm the vice president for internal administration. I'm the undergraduate advisor for the class councils, and I deal directly with the representatives on the General Assembly. All right, now let's do a kind of a rundown of what ASMSU is here. Sure. Uh, ASMSU is your uh, student government at Michigan State University. Um, and any of those newspaper bins you see around campus, those are provided by us as well. Um, we do a lot of advocacy around campus, um, so we have a third of the decision-making seats at the university and uh, impact real university decisions. Uh, the president of ASMSU um, is the representative to the Board of Trustees at Michigan State University, and their voice is heard there as well. Now, uh, ASMSU, um, we've got over 50,000 students here. Mm-hmm. How, how are you going to be reaching out to all those students? That's a good question. Uh, that's a great question. Um, so as ASMSU, we're at the undergraduate student government, um, and there's uh, the nature of uh, the student body is there's always a changing way in how we communicate. Um, so, I mean, 10 years, the new thing was Facebook. Now now it's 2015. The new social media is everything. Uh, so we do a lot of work uh, on social media, um, either Twitter or Facebook. Um, we actually, with the impact, we're able to, uh, partner a lot of things. Um, you guys help us out with PSAs a lot for the, it's on our sexual assault prevention week. Uh, you all over here at the impact help get the word out, um, to a lot of your listeners, which I know makes up a large uh, majority of the student body at Michigan state. Um, you guys are also helping out with, uh, mental health awareness week. Um, we're working with, uh, the different governing groups on campus to make sure that we touch on, um, all the constituencies at Michigan state. So we work through uh, Interfraternity Council Panel and a Council, Multicultural Greek, as well as uh, a National Panel and a Council, um, all the cores and COPS groups to make sure that uh, those groups are represented as well. And so we uh, do a lot of communication to the student body through those avenues um, and a lot of the projects we're working on. Um, Catherine can probably touch on the General Assembly as well as the class councils. Too. Yeah, so I think it's cool because there's different facets of ASMSU. So you have the General Assembly, which is composed of representatives from each college. And so they deal specifically with their college, and they're the ones who are tasked with going out to their constituents and seeing what each college kind of needs and then bringing it back to us. So that's a good way to reach students. And then with the class council, since they represent their class as a whole, 
they can kind of filter through what the freshmen may need versus what the seniors may need. Um, and that's a, a, just a different approach to reaching students. So, What has ASMSU done recently as part of their outreach to students? Um, yeah, so the um, I would say that probably the biggest example is uh, – I know I keep going back to it, but it's one of the most things I'm proud of is the It's On Us Sexual Assault uh, Prevention Week. Um, so we were getting a lot of feedback from students um, in regards to sexual assault. And so uh, students put forth a uh, bill uh, to representatives from the ASMSU put forth a bill to uh, advocate for better resources for sexual assault survivors on campus, um, as well as do advocacy during that whole week. Um, when George Will was coming to speak at graduation, um, a lot of students uh, felt very negatively about it. So we actually, um, because so many uh, representatives were heard from their constituents, they reached out to me and enough uh, qualified for uh, me calling a special session of the General Assembly uh, to vote on a resolution uh, regarding George Will coming to Michigan State as a, uh, as a speaker at graduation as well as uh, ask, advocating for resources uh, for sexual assault survivors in the same amount that George Will was being paid. And so these are just great examples of how uh, we respond to what the student body is asking for uh, issues on campus. And I think that's probably the best example from this year uh, that exemplifies that. Now, as far as uh, students who live off campus, mm -hmm. uh, what do you do to include them? Uh, yep. So I, like I said, we uh, do a lot of uh, advertising in the state news, uh, which reaches all students on campus. Um, we work with uh, you all at the Impact here, which uh, broadcasts everywhere around campus. Um, we also ha work with uh, other student groups to help get the word out. Um, I mean, IFC, uh, Panhellenic Council, all are off campus uh, as a whole. And so they're able to get uh, signs on their lawn, uh, the word out, out about initiatives. Um, one cool thing to do uh, with, about with Mental Health Awareness Week, which will be uh, March 30th through April 3rd, um, is we're able to partner with the city. Um, a lot of restaurants on campus are uh, putting up posters and information regarding uh, that event, regarding information on mental health and resources on campus. Um, so we're able to reach students off campus. We have a pretty good network there and we're building better relationships with the city. Um, we have regular meetings with the city as well uh, to help us get the word out about a lot of ASMSU services. Um, I would just say to add, add to that, Bryn Williams, who's our um, yeah. community liaison, he deals a lot with off-campus students as well. Mm -hmm. He um, partners a lot with the different leasing organizations, um, such as DTN, the CRMC, mm -hmm. to make sure that, you know, because students off-campus, one of the biggest problems they have is with their landlords, um, right. to make sure that they're being fair to students, as well as with CADA, which affects, obviously, all student undergraduate students. Right. And one important thing to note off that is uh, a lot of our, our – we have three lawyers through our – legal services um, that are housed in ASMSU's offices. And uh, a lot of the issues they deal with are landlord-tenant issues um, or issues with students who uh, um, have legal issues uh, off campus. And so that uh, that's another way that we interact with students from off campus. Mm -hmm. Now, with the as the student population keeps increasing, are you going to have to see an increase in your staff at ASMSU and the size of like the, the class councils, for example, or the general assembly? Uh, yeah, I mean, with uh, a rise in a number of the students, so the representatives from each college are by proportion. Uh, so the number of students they have in that college, the more reps they get. Um, so as population grows in the different colleges, we'll see more representatives be involved. Um, with more people on campus, that means we'll have more representatives, more people wanting to be representatives. We'll have 
uh, more a di more diversity in viewpoints as well. Um, I'm more interested in the class councils uh, and just greater interest in ASMSU as, uh, as a whole. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would just say, I obviously, the more students involved in ASMSU, the better. I'm sure you guys feel the same way at Impact. Um, so in terms of class councils, I think the larger the population gets, just the more voices that can be heard. Mm -hmm. So I, I would encourage anyone to join a class council if they're interested. And uh, for interested students, where can they reach out to? Probably the best way is asmsu.msu.edu. Uh, you can reach us at, at ASMSU on Twitter, or you can come on up to the third floor of student services and visit our business office. And in fact, if you want to get involved in ASMSU, a great opportunity is through our elections, which uh, are happening April 6th through the 13th, which is our general assembly elections for representatives to ASMSU. However, and class councils. And class councils, you're <laughs> correct. Uh, and the neat thing about uh, that is all undergraduate students can run to represent their college. Uh, they election packets are due March 17th. Um, so if you're interested, if you're listening and you're interested in becoming a representative to ASMSU, the largest student government in the Big Ten, then uh, come on up to the third floor student services, grab a packet, fill out the information, and uh, represent your constituents. Now, we have this tax vote coming up for uh, RHA and uh, Impact 89 FM. Uh, so let's do a rundown of uh, when, where, what, what's the, the tax vote about this year? Right. Uh, so the tax vote is April 6th through the 13th, um, which will be for both RHA and uh, the Impact, uh, which is pretty exciting. Um, I believe the uh, the tax for RHA is $22 and uh, student a semester, and the tax for the Impact is $3 per student per semester. Um, I'm really excited about both those. I think RHA does a great job of representing on-campus students. Um, they're really great to work with. Uh, I'm really excited for, um, so ASMSU oversees the radio board, which oversees uh, the impact. And actually ASMSU recently voted uh, to approve putting the uh, student tax on the ballot for uh, the impact. Um, I'm really excited about that vote because of so many opportunities this organization involves. Uh, I believe the impact has around 200 students, both workers and volunteers, provides uh, a unique experience for students uh, on campus and a great learning experience, in addition to uh, it being an award, a great radio station. It's an award-winning radio station, consistently number one in terms of college radios. Uh, there's always specialty shows playing. There's uh, opportunities for students to be involved in marketing and uh, involved in uh doing engineering work uh, in a radio station. And so, and I know a lot of uh, people who have worked here have been really successful moving on after. So I think it's a great opportunity for students to be involved, great opportunity for students to learn, and really it's wonderful to listen to. So for our student listeners out there, why should they go out and vote? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, I mean, as a, a basic uh, argument is that students should go and vote because it's how they make their voice heard. Uh, they have the right to vote um, as students at Michigan State University. Uh, further, a representative at ASMSU, that person has uh, a great ability to affect change in their lives and uh, do the things that students would like to see on campus. Uh, ASMSU has a third of the decision-making seats at Michigan State University and all the university governance uh, systems and uh, are able to affect change in that matter. Uh, in terms of RHA and the impact, those are two great services that students uh, are able to uh, vote on and continue enjoying um, and hopefully provide vote to provide more uh, services to future Spartans as well. 
Yeah, just to add to that, um, I think like this is our university, obviously, so we do want to be heard. And I think Mm -hmm. the election is a great way for to reach students um, and ASMSU Impact RHA. They all provide great opportunities for students. And I think they present opportunities for students to be successful outside of college, which is why we're all here. You know, we're here to get an education and um, to, you know, move on to the next step of our lives. So I think as renewing the tax for impact and RHA and voting in the ASMC elections is a great way to make sure that, you know, as Spartans, we are all successful. (laughs) (laughs) Now, is there anything else that the two of you would like to add about anything we discussed today? April 6th to the 13th. uh, It's one of the coolest ways you can um, make your voice heard here at Michigan State University. Uh, If you want to, I think the coolest way to make your voice heard at Michigan State University is by being that voice. Uh, You can turn your election packets in, uh, from up until March 17th, uh, which is the Tuesday after spring break. Uh, you can pick them up uh, at in room 328, ASMSU, Third Floor Student Services. And I also just want to jump in and add that uh, throughout the whole week of elections, the class councils will be hosting various events. Um, with They'll have iPads and laptops, so they'll be in different dorms and different parts on campus to reach students and not only to vote to renew the tax, but also for elective representatives. Right. Well, thank you for coming in today, James and Catherine. Hey, thank you for having us. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. We end the show tonight with Quinn Hoffman as he explains the rebirth of our latest exposure segment, Michigan Storytellers. Welcome to the Michigan Storytellers segment. This is a new segment. We're actually rebirthing into exposure here. At the end of some episodes of exposure, we are going to have this segment that features students and Michiganders, just people coming on and telling true stories about their life. Um, Last week, we had a story from Rebecca Small about her brother Steve Small. Uh, That can be found online as well as this one after it airs here tonight. Me and Sarah Tarico, a news teamer that helped uh, pioneer the rebirth of this segment, talked for a little bit last time. We talked about why we want people to uh, send us their stories and what we're really looking for. And I think the general consensus was community. Uh, that this is a local program that you guys can really get involved in if you want to. So send us your stories. Uh, my email is news at impact89fm.org. Uh, if you go to our website, you can find the link to that under the exposure tab. Tonight on the show, we have Steve Doubt. Steve is a uh, man who grew up as a Quaker. And his story focuses on him trying to get CO status during the Vietnam War. CO is conscientious objector, which essentially is somebody that doesn't believe in violence and is trying to get, is trying to become exempt from uh, a war. It's probably also good to note that uh, somebody can be granted CO status and still be called in to serve for medical reasons or uh, to do paperwork essentially, but they still wouldn't be, they would still be serving a nonviolent position. Without further ado, here's Steve Doubt with the Vietnam Quaker. I was born and raised a Quaker. Quakers are more formally known as the Society of Friends. The basic principles of Quakerism include reverence for life and opposition to all wars. Uh, respect for the natural world and environmental stewardship, and responsibility for your actions. You show your core values not by what you say, but what you do. Also, silence is always a part of a Quaker worship service, 
and some meetings simply consist of people sitting around for an hour in complete and total silence. Quakers aren't shakers, Amish or Puritans. Quakers don't reject technology, and they don't dress like the oatmeal guy. I haven't been a practicing Quaker since I left home at the age of 18, but as I get along in life, I've come to realize how much those early years have influenced the decisions that I've made. I received my college degree in geology because of my reverence for the natural world. My understanding of the value of silence has translated to an ongoing meditation practice, and during the Vietnam War, I was a conscientious objector. Now, it wasn't that I was opposed to that particular war, but that participation in any war would be a violation of a very core belief. So at age 17, I found myself in a very long and slow-moving line at the Muscatine, Iowa County Courthouse. Almost everybody in the line knew each, knew each other, uh, but we weren't really talking to each other because each one of us there was silently rehearsing what he was going to say to the military review board to defend his application for CO status. So after standing in that line for what seemed like hours, I was second in line between a father and a son. The doors opened and this army general came out. And uh, this was the first time I had ever seen anybody in full dress military uniform before, up front and personal. And uh, this general cut a very imposing figure. The father and son started walking into the hearing room And the general stopped the father. He put his hand on the father's chest, and he said, you can't come in. When the father tried to protest, the general said, it's about time your son learned to defend himself. He's he's the one applying for status, and he's the only one we're going to talk to. The father was frustrated but sat down on a bench just outside the door. The boy went into the hearing room with the general, and these thick wooden doors closed behind him. These doors, I remember them really well. They were very, very heavy, wooden, oversized doors, very thick, obviously designed to keep us out and the sounds of the hearing room in. The voices, uh, I, I still heard voices through that door. And they started rising very rapidly just a few minutes into that session. Clearly, there was some shouting going on. And and the father obviously saw that, too, and he started pacing back and forth. Finally, I heard the general's voice, and he was obviously very angry, and he was shouting at the top of his lungs. What you're saying doesn't make any sense. We're done with you. Get out and close the damn door behind you. The doors open, a very red faced door, my age, or uh, the very red faced boy, who was my age, came out, tears streaming down his face, fell into his father's arms, and they made their way out the front door of the courthouse. Then there was complete and utter silence except for one sound, 
my heart beating very rapidly. After a few hellish moments for me, the doors opened again. The general stepped out. He looked down at me and said, are you Steve Doubt? Now, according to the Journal of George Fox, the guy who founded the Society of Friends in the 1600s and was repeatedly thrown in prison for his beliefs, in his journal, he documented an incident in the year 1650 when he found himself in front of Justice Bennett of Derby, England. After some very heated discussion, which was, uh, frankly, about his next incarceration. Fox became very agitated, and he, shaking from anger, he raised his Bible, and he said, Justice Bennett, you need to tremble before the word of the Lord. At that point, the justice dubbed him a Quaker, which is how Quakers got their name. And as I entered the hearing room that day, That's not the reason I was quaking. I was ushered into the room, and the general had me sit at the end of a long wooden table. He sat at the other end, and there were three uh, military men on each side of the table. So there were seven military officers in all, all in full-dress uniform, all staring at me. The general asked me, why I filed for CO status, and I explained it to them. Then they started asking me questions. Why was I opposed to our actions in Vietnam? Did I hunt? Had I ever killed anything? What would I do if I was faced with the decision to kill or be killed? Would I object to serving in the armed forces in non-combatant status? On and on. They were very thorough and very respectful. And after a few moments, they actually thanked me and sent me on my way. Two weeks later, I received a letter granting me status as a conscientious objector, and I decided to volunteer for service. My friends thought I was nuts. Uh, It was toward the end of the, the war. Very few people were being called up. It was a a lottery draft system, and uh, I had a reasonably high number, so the chances were that I might not be called at all. But I couldn't be sure either way, and I decided to plan for it rather than leave it hanging over my head, so I volunteered for service. When I went into the local office, the recruiter seemed shocked to see me. I wasn't wasn't really sure why. Um, I thought maybe it was just because I'd volunteered. But uh, when the paperwork was finished, the recruiter said, look, um, I'm not supposed to do this. But you surprised me when you came in here because of something that just happened this morning. He went to his file cabinet. He pulled out the front file. It was mine. He just reviewed it. He was about to call me into service when I walked in the door. But there was another reason that I volunteered for service that day. I was following that inner belief 
that told me that you show your core values by what you do, not by what you say. We all have choices, and, it, and though it might not be easy, and although the system is far from perfect, in America we are free to follow the choices we make for good or for ill. I believed then, and I still do today, that providing two years of service to this country is a small thing against the privilege of living here. If you have a story to share yourself, contact Quinn Hoffman or Sarah Tarico with information found on our website at impact89fm.org. All episodes of Exposure can also be found online at impact89fm.org. Special thanks to our general manager, Ed Glazer, our station manager, Gabriela Saldivia, our producer, Quinn Hoffman, and Sarah Tarico for leading Michigan storytellers. You've been listening to Exposure, Michigan State's student-run news program with your host, Daniel Rizal. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure.